I love exploring both in the in the natural world and and in the studio. Those two things go side by side. Hi everyone. I'm Amy Devers and this is Clever. Today I'm talking to artist Jonathan Trait. Jonathan Trait's work lives at the intersection of sculpture and furniture. It seeks to reinterpret modern consumer behavior and explores the psychology of desire through surface, material, light, and color. His approach to making involves using a wide range of materials, methods, and processes. Drawing inspiration from both man-made ephemera and the natural world, he conjures surreal manifestations and seductive combinations. The work is a coming together of natural forms and saccharine colors. Glossy, synthetic skins of paint, resin, or glass give the work a colorful pop status, a chameleon appearance, and an almost edible quality. He's recently wrapped a solo show at Friedman Benda titled Melon Melon Tangerine. Based in the UK, in Margate, Kent to be specific, he holds a Master's of Fine Arts from Royal Academy Schools and has been included in numerous international exhibitions. Here's Jonathan. My name is Jonathan Trait. I'm a sculptor, visual artist, and I'm working currently in Margate in Kent, south of England. I'm a maker. I'm inspired to create artworks and design pieces for living. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, clever friends. If you'll be in New York City this month for Design Week, I want you to come to the Emerging Designer Showcase. It's at the Javits Center during ICFF on the main stage, Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Think of it kind of like lightning round mini critiques plus professional speed dating all rolled into one. And it's genuinely entertaining. Here's how it works. On stage, five rising design talents will each present their work to a group of illustrious industry professionals for real talk advice and critical feedback. And for better or worse, this all happens in front of a live audience. We've hand-selected a phenomenal group of designers for this year's show, and we have a star-studded lineup of very discerning industry pros who will be up there with them. The Emerging Designer Showcase is presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Again, that's Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. at ICFF at the Javits Center. You can register to attend for free at ICFF.com with our special promo code D-A-P-M-C-L-E-V-E-R. See you there. 
in order to understand who you are now, I always like to go way back to the beginning. So can you talk to me about your formative years? Like what kinds of things captured your imagination as a young Jonathan? Sure. I was born in Huddersfield in Yorkshire, and it's kind of semi-rural life. My uh, my father's always worked overseas. And then when I was only a couple of months old, my mum flew me to South Africa to meet my dad, who was working out there. And we lived in South Africa until I was about five years old. My One of my sisters was born out there whilst we were living there. So the first five years of my life, I was running around. We were in really rural northern South Africa near the Kruger National Park, only maybe a stone's throw from the perimeter fence. It was pretty basic living. It was dusty, essentially like a, a trailer park for like um, a huge construction project that my dad was working on. So it was very unglamorous. But what it meant was that we had access to the most phenomenal landscapes. And they had like a VW camper van that had like a pop top. And they took that all around South Africa on his days off or the weekends or whatever. That was the first five years of my life. But I, I was born in Yorkshire and we returned there, you know, later on. The rest of my childhood was spent in the shadow of the Pennines. There are a small mountain range that run like a spine through the north of England up into Scotland. You know, they're not huge. They're nothing spectacular, but I have to say hills are part of my life. And now living in the south of England, I sorely miss them. It's something that I lament. So the first five years with the landscapes and the camper van and one sister, how many sisters and Two siblings? Two sisters now and one brother. And you're the oldest? I am the eldest, yeah. That does sound sort of free and fun, doing the van life as a yeah. as a five-year-old. <laughs> yeah. What were the uh, elementary school years in Yorkshire like? They were comprehensive, finishing in a comprehensive high school, but middle school, music lessons, pretty standard stuff. I did okay in my exams. I did well through school-ish, and I didn't get into too much trouble. <laughs> Was creativity something that started early on and was supported or did you kind of have to fight for it or find it? No, I don't really remember my time in South Africa, but I have a very clear vision of what it felt and looked like through my mum's photography. You know, she was just a, an amateur photographer, but she captured some amazing shots, all of which was on slide film. So in, in my ch early childhood, we used to drag this huge, ungainly slide projector out every few months or once a year or whatever, and we'd just go through, take a whole weekend, we'd just go through slides and make pots of tea and, and just remind ourselves of what it was like being there. That was a very creative aspect to my very early childhood. My mum's always been really supportive. My dad was always working overseas. You know, he's working in Nigeria at the moment. So the other thing is that we, I, where I grew up, I was very close to Yorkshire Sculpture Park. It's quite an important landmark in the UK in that it's where a lot of Henry Moore sculptures were placed early on. He was a big, you know, big deal in the UK. And seeing those as a child, you know, seeing the Barbara Hepworths as well, and later on, you know, became more, uh, more inclusive. There were a lot more artists, a lot more sculptures there, seeing the Carrows or whatever that's where we went for walks at the weekend or for picnics and it was seeing those sculptures as a child as a younger child that made me feel like art was what I wanted to do I don't think I ever really had a clear thought it was never that I had a, a like a, an epiphany or a moment of clarity it's just it just became 
part of who I am, I think. Well, that would make sense. And I think that as a young child, seeing how those sculptures sort of take up residence in the public, um, not only the landscape, but the public consciousness, allows for a mental pathway to form to kind of understand what a sculptor does and how it might influence the world around you. Absolutely, yeah. And how it manifests too, you know, what sculpture means. So how did the adolescent years play out for you? And were you finding your creativity? Or were you in any way sort of needing to express some angst or anxiety? No, I've always been very creative. And even when it came to, you know, my bedroom, I got rid of my bed and I slept on the floor uh, at the age of 13. I, I always challenged conventions. I mean, creativity went across all kinds of different avenues in my life. And I had a passion for cooking. I made some hideous meals, but I was excited to experiment. And my mom was really encouraging in that. She was happy for me to mess around in the kitchen and try things out. I think also the time in South Africa, you know, traveling around, seeing the landscape, that being primarily the most sculptural aspect of the experience, but also... There's a lot of roadside attractions for tourists, sellers exhibiting like their stone, soapstone carved busts or chess sets or, you know, all of that kind of thing. That all, that, well, I think that all has an effect on how you see materials in the world and how you think about creativity. Absolutely. And so it w- seems like it was a, not really a question that you were going to study sculpture in university. It was accidental. I dropped out of A-levels. I I was still in further education. I'd gone to the sixth form to study A-levels and hated it. It was just a continuation of school. It's just mundane and just grim. And the one thing I had a passion for was art. So I went and did a BTEC, which was kind of a step sideways from A-levels. It was considered lesser, but it meant that I could spend the whole time in the darkroom doing photography or I didn't have to divide my time between other subjects that I had less interest in. It so happened that the two teachers that I had the most connection with on this BTEC were textile tutors. And they were so influential and positive and encouraging that I actually considered pursuing textiles or textile design. There was a course kind of a sculptural textiles approach. It was a course in Manchester that, that I thought I was going to go to. And it just happened that a friend of mine who was studying down in Kent invited me to come and visit. And I saw the course and I realized that actually I was on a wrong path and that sculpture was what I really wanted to pursue. So that BTEC was very, very impactful in terms of allowing you to focus, it sounds like. Yeah. So you've decided to study sculpture after thinking you might go into textiles. And then when you went to do sculpture, did you go straight from your BFA to your MFA? Or talk to me about your years of creative study. Yeah, well, so all the while I thought I wanted to study textile art, I'd pursued photography and photography was my main passion. But I just had no desire to become a photographer or to work in the photography industry. So I was feeling a bit lost. And then I found sculpture. But on the, the BA that we studied on, I had a lot of fun and we learned quite a bit. It was Most of it was self-led, so you had to enable yourself in whatever discipline you thought you might want to focus on. I think it was at that point in the UK that university courses were kind of falling apart. Sadly, I think the education system is in a bad place and 
our course wasn't great. I needed to subsidize my income. You know, I don't come from a wealthy family and I had to pay my way through university. So I took a job in a kitchen in a farmer's market. It's kind of a one of a kind. It has, uh, it's, it's called the Goods Shed in Canterbury and they have, they have a huge, it's like a, a huge old uh, railway hangar with a farmer's market and kitchen attached and they use the produce from the market to supply the kitchens. Oh, that sounds great. It was amazing. And what I learned about food informed everything that I now know about sculpture. Working with the team there, working with hot materials, hazardous environments, it's all informed how I think about making art. So actually, that was the most rewarding part about studying in Canterbury, was the, the paid job I did in the evenings with a team of chefs. Wow. Can you illustrate that a little bit for us? Well, the chef, Raf, he's a Spaniard, and so he he studied, trained in in the Basque regions. And the Spanish have an approach to food that's really minimal and it's visceral. It's just really present with the ingredients you're working with. There's not a lot of like fancy technique. It's more about creating, like maximizing your flavors with what you've got. But he was really happy to experiment and encouraged us to experiment. And the menu changed daily. We never, you know, repeated the same thing. And it was just a huge learning curve about materials from sugar to glass from flour to plaster the all of these things are interconnected and it just taught me so much about materials i love that i can see it it's starting to all make sense to me so what happened between getting your bfa in canterbury and moving on to your mfa at the royal academy having worked in the kitchens I'd learned a lot and gained this passion for things that are appetizing and repulsive, you know, handling of materials. But I hadn't really learned a lot about making sculpture. So I then set about acquiring the skills in order to pursue a career as an artist. I worked for other artists like Gary Hume, for example. I worked with Kim Merridge, who's his close friend, and he's a stonemason, so he taught me everything I know about stone. I worked metal fabrication. I ended up working in a foundry. So over the space of maybe four years, I focused primarily on acquiring skills. And it's then that I applied to go to the Royal Academy of Arts in London, not thinking I'd get in, and amazingly did. You know, the lad from Yorkshire who spent most, most of his time in a kitchen got into the Royal Academy. So it was really exciting, but also kind of a bit daunting. So you packed up and moved to London, and how were your Royal Academy years? Amazing. Yeah, like a family. There's only maybe 16 or 18 students per year group. It's a really small course. And that's across all disciplines, painting, photography, sculpture. And it's a three-year course too. So you really get to know everyone that you study with quite closely. And, you know, it can be a bit um, abrasive sometimes. Someone plays music too loud and it's just like having a sister that's just annoying you. But it's, um, you know, it was really, really rewarding. What was the transition like from student to professional? So I'd spent the years working at the Royal Academy working in a bronze foundry simultaneously. This gave me enough income to support myself, but it also gave me access to the workshops. For my final show, I cast a series of bronze sculptures, which was really kind of the foundry owners. They they kind of sponsored me. They allowed me to use the workshops I just paid for the raw materials and I just put the time in. But what this meant was that I had a series of glossy, appealing bronze sculptures on show in my final exhibition that all got snapped up. Everybody wanted a piece. So it, 
it was kind of a plunge into professional career. I had clients wanting artworks. I had to get my studio set up properly. And it was a baptism of fire, really. It was, it was intense, but it was exciting. I had quite a few exhibitions. People obviously had seen the show at the RA and they wanted me to produce work of a similar vein for, for other exhibitions. They'd seen the response it had got to, so it meant that a lot of people, there was a kind of an, an appetite for these bronze sculptures, but there was no room for experimentation. So whilst I had quite a few interesting exhibitions, I, I quickly lost interest in it. I became a bit jaded because I just got a little bit lost. And as a sculptor, I was not solely focused on casting melons in bronze. So I, I, was, I, had, I was desperate to experiment more. And I went through a little bit of a time where I said no to some things. And I had a little bit of a rocky patch where I just felt really, yeah, lost. And, and then I had another exhibition it was for the Converse Dazed, where I built an installation with everything that I'd been experimenting with. There were bronze sculptures in there, but there were wallpapers, concrete marrows, live plants, printed textiles. I mean, glazed ceramics, everything. I just threw everything at this exhibition. It was just really exciting. I felt alive, you know, it was, it was exhilarating. So it can be a strange thing when you make a splash or an impact with your bronze sculptures. And then, of course, everybody wants that. And that's sort of what drives your income until you almost have to break out of that cycle or, or the cycle will consume you. And when you did this exhibition with everything that you've been experimenting, do you feel like it established for the world that you were not going to be the bronze sculpture guy and that they would now have to accept you as this person who works with all these different materials? I think for a lot of my peers, they were really impressed. You know, I got a lot of compliments on the show, but it wasn't really that well uh, publicized. So I don't think it didn't really define who I am, but it, it, it was more important for me as a person, as an artist. It gave me the confidence to really pursue these other avenues that I'm interested in. And it led on to a museum show at the Tetley in Leeds, and for that show, I really threw everything at it too. And I brought back all of the bronze sculptures, but they'd shifted slightly. And also the gallery space at the Tetley is an old office building for the brewery. It's a beautiful space, but it's got oak paneling and parquet floors. It's quite dark. And so I took the decision to illuminate some of the bronze sculptures just to give kind of punctuation to the space that was the beginning of the lamps and it was a real step forward for me. It just changed the way I thought about things entirely. So that show is the one that really changed things. Changed things for you or changed things for how you were perceived in the art space? Both. Yeah. How are you able to sustain yourself while you're doing this experimental phase? I've always been quite lucky in that there have been collectors keen to support me. Sales have been thin at times, but I've always managed to kind of eke through. And also, I mean, up until about four years ago, I was still working part-time at the foundry that I've worked at in London and supported myself when times are lean, doing paid work there. And they were always happy to have me. They've been so supportive. But they've also taught me so much. The only reason I know how to do any metal work at all is because of the time I spent there. Sounds like a wonderful relationship. I think it's quite rare now as well because employers have to protect themselves from flaky staff. You can't have someone that wants to do a month's work and then nothing for two months because they've got a show in Barcelona or whatever, you know. So I was really lucky. 
when I kind of had that downtime and I was questioning everything, I was trying to work out what kind of an artist I wanted to be and how it was going to fit in the world. I took the decision to say yes to everything. That's what I've done since. And it meant that some opportunities that came up that might on paper have seemed a bit lackluster or not really worth the time, I would commit to, but I would then do my best to make it something that was positive, that was going to teach me something or introduce me to another person that's influential. So I've done I've done lots of different projects, but one of those things was a collaboration with British Fashion Council and we were asked to produce an artwork and I was put with a fashion designer called Kit Neal who who works in menswear and we were given £5,000 to make an artwork that they were then going to auction, sell to a client and fund the next year's collaborations. So it, it seemed okay, 5000 well, it was a nice sum of money. You can do something with it, but you can't do a lot. And we just didn't really want to produce a static artwork that gets whisked off and hidden away. We wanted to create an experience. And Kit has a lot of experience in the fashion industry, running campaigns. He's collaborated with a lot of commercial businesses, Lavazza being one, you know, something I've never done. So he negotiated with them and we persuaded Christie's, who were sponsoring the venue, to allow us to close their cafe and open a new one in the galleries. And we set about using my material knowledge and both of our really hard work to build a cafe for people to use for two weeks. And that was the first time I made seating and tables. It was just a huge challenge, but, but it was worth every minute. It was, a, it was a great experience. I just got goosebumps because I can kind of feel things coalescing for you in terms of your sculptural work, your material knowledge, this collaborative relationship, but also venturing into functional sculpture as a way of encouraging interaction and influencing the experience as opposed to just the view how did you feel about that? Like being responsible for an entire environment as opposed to a static piece? Well, because it was a collaboration and also it was sidelined to my main practice. It wasn't an exhibition with only my name at the top. I felt free to experiment without any real risk of comeback. Obviously, I wanted to do my best and put my name to it, but I just didn't really have the same pressure that I would usually put myself under. And what came out of it was much more creative and positive than I'd ever imagined that immediately fed back into my own work so this kind of happened just I think maybe a month after the show at Leeds uh, at the Tetley so these two experiences making the lamps and then making the tables all in the same quarter of a year then focused all of my drive to pursuing making a series of lamps and then I did a show at Christie's again six months later in collaboration with Anton Alvarez and Andreas Siegfried. And I showed 12 lamp sculptures with neon and all sorts going on. So that, again, was a really important show. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. 
There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. I'm also wondering if that freedom you had while working on the cafe with Kit Neal, is that freedom something you were able to afford yourself moving forward in your, in your process? Yeah. Bizarrely, I've come to making like furniture-like artworks from an artist's perspective. It might seem odd to some people, but in thinking of function, that actually gives me more freedom. There's less pressure. A static sculptural object is so loaded you know, the place I was telling you about, the Yorkshire Sculpture Park, when you see the Hep- Barbara Hepworth family of man, or you see one of the Henry Moores up on the hill, it's so loaded and heavy. Yeah, and static, that's the word. You're not allowed to touch it, you're not allowed to sit on it. And we always did. When I was a kid, there were never signs saying, don't climb on the sculpture. We used to use them as slides. And yeah. I told Helen Phoebe, the curator there, that we know now, and she was horrified. She said, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> but... um for me, like venturing into functionality gives me immense freedom. It's exciting. And also working with Friedman Bender, which I'm sure we'll go on to talk about, they are just amazing. I mean, what a great team. What a great gallery. Yeah, so that's what I wanted to ask about next. You just completed a solo exhibition at Friedman Benda entitled Melon Melon Tangerine. So I want to hear all about how this show came together and how the work that you made for this show came together. We had a plan to exhibit work now despite what's been going on around the world and it's something that i've been working towards for a year i had to move studios and set up down here in kent because i needed a much bigger space much larger than anything you can you can get in london so that was a big shift for me but the year before i took i did a road trip i met my wife in la and we drove to nebraska we took like a 2000 mile detour around through southern california arizona utah I have to back up. You met your wife in LA, meaning you met her for the, you met her? She was already my wife. Yeah. So yeah, we met, we met in, um, we met actually at the Royal Academy. She's from Long Island originally. Yeah. She came to study at the the RA in our year group. Uh, Yeah. We hit it off while studying and eventually we got married. She needed a visa, which was like, oh God, we're going to have to get married now. And (laughs) now it just seems like, you know, obviously it was the right thing to do. Okay, so I'm back to your road trip now. We drove to Nebraska through this southern, you know, southern California, Arizona, Utah. That got to see some of the things that I've been dreaming about. You know, I'm obsessed with that landscape. Paris, Texas is one of my f- favorite films. And those arid desert scapes are just, they're just etched in my mind. So, you know, visiting Joshua Tree, I know it's not Texas, but it was just mind-blowing. And it, that's what fueled the content for this show. And what viewers might feel like it's kind of a disparate connection. And they might look at the work in the show and say, well, how does this fit with the West? But it's there in spirit. You know, it's there in the materials or it's there in the vision of some brazen plant that's defying all, all natural laws and, and thriving mm-hmm. in this arid place. So that's what fueled the work. I can see that. I'm curious about this road trip because it seems to me a little bit like van life, South Africa 2.0. Yeah. I've never really made that connection, but yeah, you're right. I guess it does. 
Did you take a lot of photos? Many, many photos, yeah. And we just chucked a tent in the back. We did day hikes. We slept rough in the dirt. We climbed into the Rockies and pitched a tarp. In fact, we didn't have a tent. We just had a tarp. Slept on the floor with a canopy in case it rained, which it never did. Uh, Just slept wild for two and a half weeks whilst driving huge swathes of the country. It was amazing. I would do it continuously if I could. I wanted to just carry on north all the way up to Canada, but we time didn't allow for that. So That does sound wonderful and free and wild. And I can see both the landscape and the sort of makeshift structures in your work. I am wondering if you met your wife at Royal Academy, then is she's an artist as well? She is. She's a sculptor. Her name is Rachel Champion. Yeah, she's more of an installation artist, but she's, you know, she's done big outdoor projects and she's uh, an inspiration. Can you talk to me about your creative process? We, we sort of understand where the genesis of this work for the Friedman Benda show came from in terms of your, your road trip. How does that sort of imprint on your brain and then germinate into an idea that will then have materials associated with it? Can you walk us through that? Well, all the while we're driving or hiking in the mountains or whatever, I'm I'm having ideas about how some inspirations I've seen, you know, mind-blowing lichen or a tree that's got missing two branches, you know, whatever it might be, how that might influence an artwork that coalesces when I come to sit down and draw concepts or draw ideas about artworks or pieces of furniture or whatever it might be that I'm working on. And I do a lot of drawing. It's really handy for both for me to visualize how something might come together, but also for the team at the gallery about what it is that I might be planning or what a show might look like. There's a huge collection of these drawings as I as I tried to articulate this language, this uh, visual scene that we'd been through. And that led on to a choice of materials and processes and and ultimately some sculptures that came out of it. You work with in such a wide range of materials. Can you tell me and our listeners about what some of those materials are, what it is about the materiality of those that appeal to you, and how they're meant to communicate certain aspects of, of what it is you're mm. attempting to communicate? Having worked in the kitchen, I, I've been I've always been used to trying to incorporate you know, a wide variety of flavors or textures into a meal. Something that's sweet yet it's got a salty aftertaste or, you know, something that's velvety but it's got some something hard and crunchy. And this all relates to sculpture and how I think about making artworks. For me, it's really important to combine as many materials as I can and... I know that there are designers and artists out there that do that go way further, but for me, it's about creating a language and an aesthetic that's both pleasing and also slightly nauseating. Because I feel like nothing is ever perfect in life, and these sculptures are obviously referencing life itself. So for me, it's important that there's some conflict in the work, you know? What is nauseating for you in life? Can you make it real for us? Sure, like um, beautiful sunny day, but the seaweed has come up on the beach. And so whilst you're seeing this beautiful, you know, sunshine vista, you're also smelling this slightly sulfurous smell. Mm -hmm. Or you're driving through the countryside and you're, you know, you're heading down to the cliffs for a day hike or whatever. And you accidentally 
clip a, a sparrow that flies out of the bush into the front of your car or those little moments that was helpful though thank you for giving me some like examples because that helps me also draw the connection to your work because i think one of the things that's so provocative about it or so actually really appealing even though you have that sort of language of something that's pleasing with a touch of nausea. <laughs> That's what makes it really appealing to me because it's not saccharine and it doesn't take for granted a certain predisposition of the viewer. It doesn't seem to be espousing any sort of judgment on the nauseating part of it as much as it is sort of holding those two conflicting things together in a weird form of harmony. Nice. Yeah, I like that. Because it's all part of life. You know, nothing's crunchy if you haven't got soft things. And, <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah, so it's all, everything's as important as, as the other. So just from a like purely practical day-to-day perspective, if I were a fly on the wall in your studio, what does it look like and what would I see on an average day? Because you work with so many different materials. I just, I need you to take me there. I primarily work on my own, and I, I had a, a great assistant during the pre- preparation for this show at Friedman Bender, but because of COVID, we've had a lockdown here, and it's just been impossible to get help on a regular basis. And also, I, I quite like working on my own anyway, and at the moment, I'm working on a set of dining chairs. So it's currently a metal workshop, but also I'm working with some beautiful American black walnut. And each chair has an aspect of walnut. So I've got two stations set up at the moment, and both are creating a huge amount of dust and mess as I plow through all of this fabrication. But also, it's very industrial, but there's also a lot of plant life. I get a lot of inspiration from the natural world and the few like bizarre specimens that I have growing that I've imprisoned in my studio. The poor things, they get covered in dust and I have to hose them down, but they <laughs> give me a lot. And there's a, there's a lot of succulents and cacti and palm trees in my studio. I also adorn the walls in the particular areas with a lot of inspirational material. It could be anything from, I screenshot things from Instagram sometimes because I'm so poorly educated when it comes to design, the history of design. Um, Glenn Adamson was laughing, you know, he was talk, saying about most designers talk about influences from the Bauhaus, but I'm more interested in crisp packets or, mm-hmm. you know, biscuit wrappers from Sainsbury's. Yeah, I mean, all of these things are an influence and have books scattered about. You know, I've recently been like combing through a um, Babadi book and Franz West, who's sadly recently passed. He's always been a huge inspiration. I hope to glean some of his insight in my work. I have a forklift. I always play music. I love traveling around the world, listening to different music. Usually listen to Ravi Shankar in the morning. I'm on a farm. There's... There's a lot of birds at the farm. Do you have like a big barn door you can swing open and be Yeah, I've got of... a huge four, four and a half meter roller shutter. So as soon as I get in, rain or shine, that goes up and I'm kind of outside. It's freezing cold sometimes and then others, it's south facing. So we get the sun. It's really nice. Rachel has a studio next door now and she's also sharing with two other artists who are based in Kent. Uh, Louise Beer and John Hooper and uh, John's a photographer he's actually he's been photographing my work and he's a photographer and artist in his own right and uh, Louise too is an artist and they're interested in astronomy so we have a telescope at this at the studio and we'll have lunch together it's a really nice environment there's such a stark contrast to London which 
my studio was above the foundry, which is why I had access to that employment all those years. I had a, a live workspace on the top floor of the foundry. So everything I made prior to leaving, leaving London came down six flights of stairs in an industrial stair, you know, in building stairway. So I'm, I'm really glad you painted that picture of your studio and you really did take us there. And it does seem like you've built for yourself a, a nice place to kind of spread out and give yourself the freedom to, to make a kind of work that you want to work. Would you, would you say you're in a good space to do that? Definitely. The only thing lacking is the topography, the terrain that I, that I long for, you know, from my childhood. I miss the hills. I would love to move north one day or move, move further afield. I mean, we talk about going to the Canaries just because of the volcanic sand, but I've never actually been there. It just looks nice in photos. When the world opens back up, I'm, I'm sure you'll have those opportunities and you can explore the world and scout it out for new domiciles. Yeah. <laughs> in thinking existentially about you as a human and your contributions to society and what this is all adding up to in terms of why you're here, <laughs> what would you say is the the main motivation that guides your drive and purpose? It is a pertinent question for these times. I think a lot of people are taking a step back and questioning their motivations and their aspirations. I think it's interesting that more and more people uh, have pets now. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know what it means, but it, it certainly means something. I think people are t suddenly realizing that they've been all consumed for so long and actually taking a breath and a step back from the ferociousness of modern life is a good thing. I don't have a succinct answer for you. I don't really know. I'm, I, I'm still learning and I'm still figuring things out. I'm 40. Maybe I'll never find, find the answer. I guess I get a lot of satisfaction in exploring through materials. And I've heard it said that, you know, everything you make is a self-portrait. And it's, it's funny because I normally just, just wear a black wool jumper and a, and a beanie or a hat or, you know, walking boots. That's me. So when you see the coolest hour day bed, you do wonder, like, how I came up with such an odd-looking thing. But uh, <laughs> I, I love exploring both in the, in the natural world and, and in the studio. Those two things go side by side. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You've said this in reference to your work, that it's informed by our global appetite for consumption and the 
kind of manipulation that advertising does on us to influence our decision making. And I wonder if since that's something that you've been attuned to and you've had your pulse, your finger on the pulse of, I wonder if you can feel that changing at all in these times. I can feel it changing a little. It is interesting to hear other people's perspectives, both about what's been going on or what we have or haven't done right. But I'm sad to say that I feel like in a year's time, people will have kind of forgotten and they'll go back to whatever it was they were doing before. I really hope that this is a moment to really question our motivation as a species and to think more about the natural world and how we need to change from a continual growth to a more of a, an intelligent way of being. I need to go back. So my, my show at the RA, another reason why I felt so jaded about continuing to make those bronze sculptures, they were really fun to make. And I gave them ridiculous titles like the beautiful Dutch woman or, and they were just stacks of painted bronze casts. <laughs> but what informed that decision to make that body of work was the fact that cycling into central London, the Royal Academy's bang in the middle of Mayfair, just off Piccadilly. And so I would pass like Prada and Gucci every single day in my like tattered jeans and my work boots coming from the foundry, going into the studios. I'd be passing all of these buildings and all these fancy cars parked up and people like bustling around with these silly bags. And that body of work was a criticism on the way, you know, we have this desire to surround ourselves with baubles. They were baubles, essentially. Yeah, that kind of criticism has always been in my work in some, some way or other. It's less so now. But those bronze sculptures, they are baubles. I think of them as kind of garish symbols of our desire to consume. And where do you feel the Jonathan Trait story going from here? I mean, other than migrating to the Canary Islands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a sensible appetite to travel. And we, we, our plan is to travel a lot more when we can, but travel in a more sensible kind of a way. I've never really done a lot of long haul flights, but there's places in Scotland I've never been. I've never been further north than Edinburgh. So I want to go and ex explore the British Isles. Work-wise, I have purely by accident ended up working with an amazing gallery who are really supportive and really encouraging and continually challenging me to produce artworks to challenge myself and to experiment. There's kind of a, a safety in having their confidence, which allows me to experiment. I just hope that this continues to bigger and more ambitious projects. Some of the artworks in this show were intentionally designed to go outside. They were small enough to fit in the gallery, but making it outdoor installations is kind of a catch-22 because you need to have had the experience and the material knowledge to be able to do it before you get given the opportunities. So my approach has been just to make them. You know, if, if, if I need to prove myself, I'll make some then. And I'm hoping that that leads on to some really ambitious outdoor artworks. But that's not to say I don't enjoy doing gallery exhibitions and making smaller pieces too. I don't want to, to decide on what's going to happen in the future. I'm just really excited to see what comes and to just throw everything I can at it and experiment and challenge myself, you know learn things on the way. I love it. Well, I am excited to see how the story unfolds. Thank you so much for sharing everything and for painting those glorious, really illustrative pictures of your studio and your work and your what goes on in your brain and the road trip. 
I was right there with you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I'm flattered you'd ask. Thanks for listening. To see images of Jonathan's work and read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would please do us a favor and rate and review, it really does help people find us. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media, with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Ilana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk.